Oh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see you all here this morning. Uh, if you're new here to uh, West Philly, my name's Daniel. I'm one of the pastors uh, on staff, and uh, yeah, it's my joy to step here in the in this preaching rotation and continue in our series through Philippians, uh, which happens to be about uh, joy, resilient joy, and reconciling love. And so far, I've, I've been so blessed, so edified and fed and strengthened through uh, the sermons uh, given by my fellow pastors uh, up here behind the pulpit. And uh, I hope to be able to contribute to that uh, this morning. I pray that this message uh, in, this, in this really dense passage would uh, give us a little more insight into the joy and love that Christ offers us, and the Word would lead us to a time of communion uh, later today. Uh, would you pray with me? And we'll look to the Word. Father, I pray for your strength, uh, for your guidance, uh, for uh, your Spirit's power and presence uh, to be real among us uh, today. Lord, if anyone uh, is feeling so discouraged, uh, feeling like they're on their last ounce of their strength and willpower, um, would you help us all to uh, sense deeply in our souls uh, the reality of your love? Uh, may it cut deep. Uh, and use this word, Lord, uh, to remind us of the surpassing worth of Christ. Uh, take us away from lesser things. Uh, take our eyes off of ourselves. Help us to see you as you are. Uh, Lord, you gave it all up for us. And now uh, we find that our wealth is in the cross uh, and all that Christ is. And so lead us today. Um, let this word come alive. Uh, Lord, in our ears and in our hearts, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, um, yeah, it's a long passage, so I'll try to break this down as simply as I can. Um, two parts. Number one, uh, the traps of fleshly confidence. Uh, and number two, uh, the joys of knowing Christ. Uh, the traps of fleshly confidence. So in this first little section here of this passage, uh, Paul's offering a stern warning uh, against false teaching. He does this quite often in his letters because he's very adamant and passionate about making sure uh, that his friends at Philippi, uh, as well as the other churches that he planted, that they, they never get led astray, uh, that false teaching does not infiltrate uh, the, his churches. And so he starts off in verse 1 by saying, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And that I am writing these things to you is, is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He's always looking out for his people to make sure that their experience of God is one marked by a strong, resilient joy that is in the Lord and nowhere else. And nothing, not even being chained up in prison as he was at that moment, could trouble him to make sure that they are all kept safe in the gospel. And driven by that desire to keep them safe, uh, he starts a new train of thought in verse 2. And he says, now look out. Beware for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Now these evildoers that Paul is referring to, they're uh, who are called the Judaizers. These are the Jewish Christians. Uh, but they refused to break away from Jewish traditions that were no longer relevant or, or needed for salvation, and they were forcing these new converts to be circumcised. And why is this significant? And so as we usually hear during our uh, infant baptism Sundays, uh, circumcision is, in the Old Testament, was a sign of God's covenant with his people Israel as they enter into the covenant uh, community. Uh, but when Jesus came to save us, his death on the cross fulfilled uh, the meaning of 
circumcision. Paul says in Colossians 2 that we have now been given a circumcision made without hands because now it's our hearts that need to be circumcised, uh, to be cut by the word, pierced by his spirit, uh, so that now sin can be broken and we can all become spiritually alive. But these Judaizers, they're preaching the opposite message by forcing them to do that. And so Paul, knowing what a danger this is to them and to spare them some physical pain, he says, uh, look out for the dogs, evildoers. Now, first of all, Paul, come on, what's with the name calling here? You know, is, is it nice to call someone a canine, right? But his intent there wasn't to be derogatory. Uh, he's actually using irony here. Uh, in those days, uh, Jews, the Jews would call Gentiles dogs as a theological illustration because back then uh, dogs weren't very cute. Uh, they're not the domesticated house pets we see in our neighborhoods today. They were wild, uh, mangy, dirty. And so these, the word dog was used to describe Gentiles because they were ritually unclean uh, and outside of the promise. And so Paul's saying with irony there, these Judaizers, the way they're behaving, the way they're thinking, they're the actual Gentiles here because they don't know what's going on. You don't have to do that to be saved. It's by faith. And so these dogs, watch out for them. And so he's warning these Philippian believers, none of them uh, uh, having been circumcised, look out for them. They have no concern for your soul. And using a little play on words there, they're not out, to do, out for your good. They're just trying to mutilate your flesh. They're the mutilators of your flesh. And then he turns around and encourages them now, verse 3, if you keep following with me, he says that we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying all of us, right, even those who are outside of the promise, we're the new true Israel, the new people of God, though not a single blade has touched your bodies. We've all been saved as a result of the ancient promise given to Abraham, and it's all because of grace. And that's why he adds these three important pieces there. Saved by grace, now we who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and now put no confidence in the flesh. So being true believers, they have the Holy Spirit now indwelling them so that, number one, they could worship in a way that pleases God without having to sacrifice animals and go through the hoopla of cleansing rituals. And this worship is not just restricted to the temple or inside a building for an hour weekly. It's a lifestyle now, worshiping by the Spirit of God. And they glory in Christ Jesus, number two, who is now the reason for all of their boasting because of what he's accomplished for them. And as a result, they're secure in him now. They never stop praising him, especially in front of others, always proclaiming what he has done for them. Number three, no confidence in the flesh. And we'll unpack this a little bit now. Because for these Judaizers, their confidence was in the flesh, something external, anything outside of Christ that makes you independent of God. And in verse 4, assuring that, that he understands what that feels like, he says, if anyone thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, listen to me, I have a lot more. And he starts to list off all those reasons. And what we see here is like a resume. Uh, not to boast or show off that he's better, but to let them know that he too knows what it feels like to be tempted, to stand on and take pride in these things. So this little resume here in the next few verses is divided into two halves. The first half were the things that were handed to him, uh, the privileges that he was uh, born into. And I know we heard last week that um, Paul was a train wreck, you know, saved by grace spiritually speaking, and that is true. Uh, but when it came to what we see here on paper, it was actually very impressive, right, what, uh, what he was born into, what he, he accomplished, which is the second half. 
So let's look at, look at this list here, the first part. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Right? It wasn't some fluke circumcision done in some shady place or in the back alley. It was done the right way according to the law. Number two, he was of the people of Israel, meaning he wasn't some recent convert who were considered second class back then. That was his origin. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin was one of two tribes that remained loyal uh, to the David's line in the southern kingdom when the kingdom divided. It was where Jerusalem was located. That was an impressive tribe to be a part of. And finally, Hebrew of Hebrews. Born and raised in Hebrew tradition. One of the best and the brightest. And now, the second half here, his accomplishments. As to the law of Pharisee, he was highly educated. He interpreted the law in the most accurate way and that, and that was most faithful to the scriptures. He knew the Old Testament inside out. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, which showed the intense zeal and passion of his religious commitment. He loved what he believed to be right and hated what he thought was wrong, and that was exemplary. And out of this came a violent persecution against the early Christians. And lastly here, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Not saying he was sinless or perfect, but that he did everything he could uh, to observe what the law required. And all that uh, was verified by people who saw his life and he showed it. He had everything going for him as far as religion was concerned. And this should pause, make us pause to think and ask ourselves, how do we, as people who have received God's precious promises, do this? We live still placing our confidence in the flesh. What is on the list of achievements that you take great pride in? You know, over the years in my ministry, I've, uh, I've had the opportunity to write recommendation letters for a lot of our students as they were applying for different grad programs and schools. And often I've had to ask for a copy of their resumes and statements so that I can reference some of the, uh, their accomplishments to back up whatever character strengths I was trying to highlight. And I was always amazed at this process of really having to sell yourself to those in charge of admission. And no wonder it's so devastating when you get rejected and told you're not good enough. But so many of us have been wired and trained in this way in our lives that we won't be able to get anywhere significant unless we really accomplish a lot. Maybe some of us students feel this way. Maybe some of us youth students feel this way, uh, where we feel pressured to be as good as everybody else, and we have to work so hard to get there. And so we bank on our own list of things. Maybe we come from an impressive background. Maybe we have parents, relatives, siblings who are very important in their field of work, and we love to mention uh, that we're part of that family. We always throw that piece of information down. Maybe we're born into a strong Christian family, and you've always banked on that your entire life for a right standing with God, and have not yet taken that step of faith uh, to personally believe. Maybe you take great pride in your ethnic background, uh, along with all the privileges and attention it brings you. Lately, I've been very proud of being Asian American, especially after I finished watching Squid Game, which I just finished these past few days, and shows like Shang-Chi, Parasite, all crazy, intense shows, and how impressed everyone, the watching world has been, and it's been tempting to go around to flaunt that. Maybe we've accomplished things that we lean on for security. Maybe we've had tremendous academic success in our lives. Maybe we've successfully earned the respect of all your our peers, coworkers, supervisors, so that they're happy to promote you and speak well of you. Maybe you're just a well-liked uh, person because you've won people over with your personality. Right? 
People like you. They love your posts. They look up to you, and it makes you feel good about yourself. Maybe you've done a lot spiritually. You grew up serving your youth group, serving the college group. In your adult years, whether single or married, you've served with sweat and tears, whether praise team, welcoming, CG leading, um, whatever it is. And that has been a crutch to lean on other than God himself. I have a few that I lean on. You know, I, at times I look at my own ministry resume. I've had the privilege to serve in one place, in one position for so many years that I know that not many can say that. And it's tempting for me to lean on that when I start to doubt myself or feel bad about myself. As a pastor with a seminary degree, at times it's tempting to take pride in my Bible knowledge. Right? I'm not bragging, but you know, I do know a lot about the Bible because I, was, I have to learn it. It'd be sad if, if I was a pastor, I didn't know anything. All those things, and I, at times it's tempting to boost my sense of worth by trying to impress people you know, with all the verses I know and the passages I'm familiar with. Past successes through the years, been able to speak at places and things that have gone well and so easy to lean on that for confidence rather than giving glory to God. What about you? What would be on your list? Maybe if you're taking sermon notes uh, this morning, maybe while I'm talking, you can uh, make note of that. Uh, jot some of those down. Uh, we probably have a lot more uh, than we think. And this can even spill over into our standing with God, right? our relationship with God. I'm reminded of uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector where uh, these two men went to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, these adulterers, extortioners, or even like this tax collector who's next to me. I do all the right things. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of everything, every single thing I receive. And he's just so self-absorbed there. It's not really even a prayer. He's just talking about himself and how thankful he is that he's not like people who aren't as good as him. And this can also be a picture of us. We think God should love us more, give us more because of the good things we do. We feel entitled to a more comfortable Christian existence with minimal hassles, worries, and difficult people, especially as we get older. And so in our pride, we give God the best of our efforts and expect all that in return. And that is why, friends, the gospel of Jesus is so important for us to remember and preach to ourselves over and over again because it completely destroys our sense of self-importance and our self-dependence. It tells us that if we stand on anything other than Jesus, that foundation will fall apart because it's sinking sand. A good background is not going to save you. Coming from a good family is not going to save you. Being of a certain race doesn't save you. Doing the right things, increasing your theological knowledge, feeling morally superior in, in situations, being passionate about justice, these are not enough to save. All these things could easily be a means to exalt yourself. And as we look ahead to Paul's testimony here, we see what is enough to save. Paul clearly found it, and he allows us to see it. And so now the second part here, let's look at the joys of knowing Christ. Verse 7 starts with the word, but. You should circle that in your Bible. He uses that word often to show that he's about to say something very, very important, a huge turn. He says, but, and then what comes after is one of Paul's most well-known writings, which is a beautiful description of his conversion experience. 
how he theologically interprets all that changed on the inside when he was on the road to Damascus, when he had that life-changing, powerful encounter with Jesus. So many songs have been written to express this, including a couple that we sang today. It's uh, similar to chapter 2's description of the humility of Christ, very poetic, descriptive words that really make his theological points hit home and very practical. So we'll take this a few verses at a time. Verse 7 and 8 says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So in this testimony, so people could understand, he's using accounting terms, right? gains and losses. It's like a chart. So back then, uh, an accountant, he, they would have this T-square where on the left side would be all his assets representing profit. And on the right side would be all his liabilities representing what he owed. And so that list of credentials on the left side was all that he once thought was for his gain, even for his eternal benefit, his upbringing, his nationality, his self-effort, his religion. But after being changed, after encountering Christ, he took a careful audit of everything and he reaches this conclusion that those things are actually supposed to be on the other side, losses. In the end, they're not gain. They would be infinitely costly to him if that's what he stood on. What an incredible turnaround from profit to liability. It made me think of dating apps. You know, a lot, some of you are on that. A lot of people at our church are on that. I, too, was on that for many years, the years I was single. And I, I understand well the frustration of trying to make a good profile, right? You have to really sell yourself, list the things that would work in your favor. You know, kids on social media, they're like, you got to put the brains, beauty, and brawn in there. And I'm like, what if you don't have any of those? <laughs> and how disheartening would it be if you found out that the things you're trying to use to attract people to you are exactly what, why they're swiping the other way, pressing X. It's like, well, come on. What if the things that you thought could gain you friends, money, favor, and respect turned out to be what caused them to run away from you? What if the things you thought for sure would win you that job or acceptance into that school was what made them pass you by? What if you like to lift weights? You hit the gym, got to get those gains. But in some weird way, lifting those weights causes you to shrink and get weaker. It's very bizarre. But this is what Paul is saying happened to him here. It was a complete turnaround, a revolutionary change for him when he realized that God had no need or concern for those things in verses 5 and 6. And so in verses 7 and 8, it's amazing, the change. He says, I counted, in the past tense, those things on the list as loss. And in verse 8, he counts, present tense now, not just that list, but everything now, all things Anything that could possibly distract him from God, it's all costly. And in verse 8, we see why. The reason why. And this is the climax of his testimony. It's because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. His life changed when his Christianity went from just obeying the law. It was just dry obedience to the richness of knowing Jesus personally. 
And so he shifts everything over to the left side. And now the gang column is empty. And what he does, he writes Jesus there. The surpassing worth of knowing him changed the way he looked at everything. Has this ever happened to you? You experience Christ in this real way so that you no longer worry about what people have to say about you or think of you. A lot of us are so worried about that. But it's not a big deal. Their approval and attention has moved from a gain to a loss. You no longer see the appeal of lust and pornography because you met Christ. You see it for the trash that it is. Its pleasure has moved from a gain to a loss. You no longer see money and material things as necessities. And you see that too much of it can bring, be more of a problem than a blessing because it brings anxiety and greed. It moves from a gain to a loss. You no longer see past successes that you once boasted in because if you dwell on it too much, you get prideful and lazy, which you increasingly despise in yourself, also now a loss. And Paul takes it further than just a liability or a loss. He says, I consider them rubbish, literal solid waste that comes out of a human body. Something no human being finds pleasant, no matter how many diapers you change. <laughs> he says that all those things are what I flush down the toilet and out of my sight. I don't want to see it or take a whiff of it ever again because I found something better and greater. And this moves him now right, to even further in his testimony because it's more than just experience. It's, it's heart and mind. It's what happened to change you in your experience, but also theology as well. He starts to unpack now in his mind, how he understands the change. In verse 9, he says, starts with the union with Christ that he experienced. I've been found in him. He's now one with Jesus. One of the most amazing doctrines you can believe as a Christian. And some scholars say it's a central doctrinal teaching in this passage. Union with Christ teaches us that we are in Christ. Christ is in us. We are with Christ and we become like Christ, and nothing can ever separate us from him. And when you embrace this truth, you will live with the victory and power, a conscious awareness of his presence that you cannot imagine. And why is this so powerful? Because he says that when he's found in him, he experiences more than ever, that he now possesses a righteousness that is not his own from obeying the law. And if you rewind a few verses, he previously considered himself to be blameless in that. But he says, I don't even have that righteousness anymore. It's a righteousness that only comes by faith. One that he can't compile or build. One that he can't work for, but he just has to sit there and by faith receive. If you're going to take the Theology 101 class in a couple weeks, just a preview here, you'll learn, or some, if you forgot, you have to relearn justification and sanctification, which verses 9 through 10 Paul explains, justification is by faith alone, a legal term, meaning you've been made right in your standing with God. It is the once and for all legal declaration of your right standing with him. And God now sees me just as if I had never sinned. That's the way I, I try to remember. Justification is just as if I had never sinned, and it all depends on faith. And being justified led Paul to want now, in verse 10, I want to know him more the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And here in verse 10 now, we see sanctification working in his life. The process by which God 
by his spirit's work, and as we cooperate in obedience, are being made holy, being made righteous more and more in the image of Christ, progressively until the day we are made perfect in heaven. So in justification, God declares us righteous. Sanctification, God makes us righteous. And as we're being made holy, the crucial part of it is that we get to know Jesus more deeply. He is no longer a set of ideas or nice-sounding stories. He is a real person in your life that you can love and relate to on a daily, on a daily basis. And I, uh, as I listen to people and their stories, to me, I always listen for that. That, that is a turning point of every salvation story is when God became more than just a set of beliefs to acknowledge, but someone I really know and come to love and cherish. And included in this knowledge are a couple of things. First thing is the power of his resurrection. Things that we need to know. The power of his resurrection. In this aspect of the knowledge of Christ, we gain a power for living that can only be credited to God. You know, there's something wrong when our Christian lives can be explained away by our own abilities, right? We're nice people because we're just good at that. We do things, this church runs well because, wow, they've got some good, capable people there. But that's not it at all. It's all about living in the power of God to be able to exert a spiritual influence in this world, seeing lives constantly being transformed with only the resurrection power of Christ surging through us, our witness, our works, which is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. We need this power to serve. We need to live godly lives. We need it to overcome temptations and sin. We need it to serve the church and reach the lost. And the second thing is what we've been talking about. The knowledge of God is sharing in his sufferings, which is all about persecution. Paul's writing from prison where he is suffering for proclaiming Christ, becoming like him in his death, which also reminds us that God uses these difficult times, to not only remind us and give us the assurance that we are in right standing with him, we're one with him, but to use those times to expose our sin, to separate us from them, just like the gold being purified uh, in the fire. But it's all worth it in the end. As we see the great conclusion in verse 11, we see that we will all attain the resurrection from the dead. Death will be just a footnote in our lives. We will pass through it and enter into eternal life in heaven with newly resurrected bodies and souls. And this is something we should want more and more because the more we gain a personal knowledge of God, the more we want more of him because we taste and see how good he is. And so can I suggest something practically? Look at Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. Can I challenge you all to maybe memorize that this week? I don't know, we don't talk about scripture memory that much these days, and it's something I was talking about with the youth group staff just a few days ago, just trying to really bring this back as such an important discipline in our lives. I have this passage memorized, and it's helped me so much to remember all the spiritual benefits I have whenever I get weak and discouraged. Maybe spend this week, take a verse at a time with your kids, your spouse, your friends, your roommates, and just remind each other of just the power in these promises and walk in the Lord through them. And see what a difference it makes right? when you go through a trial and these verses just come to mind. It reminds you of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You know, if you're not a Christian here today, maybe you're struggling to find truth 
Um, maybe you're having a hard time figuring out what exactly it is you're living for, and that, that's fine. You're here today, and maybe you've tried to find meaning in your, just your upbringing, your background, everything you've been able to accomplish. Maybe you've kept in your closet all your trophies, your ribbons, your medals, your certificates. I know before I recently moved, I don't know why I kept all, these, all the medals from all the races I ran. I was like, why do I keep these things? They're just clanging all over the place. I purged it and threw it all in the trash. <laughs> but and you think to yourself that all the, after all this hard work, after all the time spent studying, all the chasing, striving, pushing, running, there's got to be something more than all this. I thought these were all for my gain, then why do I feel like I'm not gaining anything at all? And if this is you, we're glad you're here. We hope you can find a connection here to uh, Christ's teaching here, that there is surpassing worth and gain in Christ, and that's where true joy is found. If you're here today, you grew up in the church, and you're sitting here struggling. Maybe you're bored of it all. Your spirituality just seems so dull. It's all about duty and drudgery, and I know how that feels. I want you to put this passage in your heart as well, that the worth of knowing Christ is immeasurable. There is power, joy, and hope available for you. And you will come to discover that once what you once thought you knew so well turns out to be even better. You will no longer experience dullness, only joy unimaginable. You know, I needed these words just for me personally. Um, this past week has been, was pretty rough on my wife and I. We're awaiting the arrival of our baby in just a couple of weeks here. And um, last week, my wife just had a, a medical scare that uh, thankfully turned out to be okay. Um, but it led to a pretty tiring week uh, up until leading up to yesterday, where, um, which was a two-year mark since uh, my father uh, passed away. And um, I was just sitting there yesterday morning just reflecting on all that what that experience was like, uh, the haunting feeling of every, all, every hour that led up to it when we waved the white flag, uh, took him off the chemo treatment, uh, transferred him to the hospice care where he could spend the final days of his life in peace. And I remember as I was writing the eulogy uh, for his memorial service, really I could only think about what to write uh, with a spirit of hope when I believed in God's promises and having to cling tightly to the promise of his resurrection. Uh, the sorrow of losing my dad has hurt very much, but Jesus promised his disciples that one day our sorrow will turn to joy. This promise makes the sorrow easier to handle because he took that sorrow on himself on the cross when he died for us. And we, one day when he returns, every tear will be wiped away. We will live in his presence forever. Dear Dad, uh, this is the Jesus you always showed me and that you gave your life to serve. And you taught me to do the same. May the rest of my life live up to what you showed me and be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. I know you're living in joy now, and you always told me to live by faith and to have great faith. But I'm so happy and hopeful now that you don't need to have faith anymore. You see Jesus with your eyes, without those thick glasses you wore for so many years that you loved, never took off. You're living by sight. You've endured with all the saints, and you can finally rest from all your labors. I know you're having fun up there, and I hope that you're able to run around like you used to without using that walker that you grew to hate. And like mom said when you passed, 
I hope you're finally able to eat some good food. You haven't eaten well in months. And when we get there, we'll sit together and enjoy it together like we used to. Please meet me with, there with your big smile uh, when I cross the finish line. And as painful as it was to write those words, after I finished delivering that, uh, my heart was filled with such hope, you know, that I could see him again very soon, you know. And, you know, as I'm preparing to become a father myself now, uh, that my prayer is that our son would know and love Jesus Christ so well, you know, that what he sees from my life will be a reflection of all these verses here, that I lived all this out in front of him, that I too did all I could to become like Christ in his suffering and death and live in the hope of his resurrection. I don't know where you all are today um, in your faith journey, your walk with God, uh, your day-to-day emotional and mental health. Uh, I can't fully tell from up here if you're at peace with your life. Um, You might be happy but holding things loosely. You might be going through a crisis that's left you worn out and beaten down. Maybe you're sitting here crying out for help on the inside. But as we come to the table for communion today, can I invite you uh, to run into the arms of the one who hears your cries, watches over you with compassion, and is working out his plans to make you holy and perfect. And if you put your faith in Christ, you can truly attain the resurrection. You don't have to fear death or the end of all things when Jesus returns. That's something you can long for with eager expectation. And when he comes, we will all be made alive with him and we will reign with him in glory forever. So as Christians, that's the hope we should live with. And if you're not a Christian, we pray that you will receive that hope very soon. Would you pray with me? Friends, I invite you to lay your burdens down before Christ, come to his feet. You know, we live in a weary world uh, that pushes us to strive and strive to be better. Uh, Otherwise, we'll feel useless. That's not how God intended for any of us to live, to bank on things that really at the end of the day, when we try to present them to God, they only work against us. And maybe that's why we feel so weary and restless and lost uh, in our day-to-day lives. That's why we feel so weary and restless in our spiritual journey. We feel so far from God. But today as we come to him, uh, we're reminded that all that can change because that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of Christ. Would you pray for a minute? Uh, Look to your Lord and Savior. Look to Jesus. 
uh, who loves you so much today, who wants you to bring you from the muck and mire of all your doubts, uh, discouragements, and fears, and bring you to a place of absolute faith and trust in the one who gave himself for you. Let's pray for a minute. For anyone who feels trapped uh, in this very, very painful way of living, uh, trying to exalt yourself, exert yourself, uh, this table represents freedom, freedom from self-absorption, uh, freedom from self-seeking, and the crushing weight of having to measure up. This table also represents a chance to turn around for a second chance at, at getting right with God uh, through faith, by believing in what he's accomplished for you. So that's our invitation today. He will come and be renewed by the power of Christ and what he did on the cross for us. Um, we're going to look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, for what uh, communion, uh, uh, its explanation of communion for us and the manner in which we need to come. So church, what is the Lord's Supper? And what is the right way to receive the Lord's Supper? Amen. And so as we come to the table today, we remember that. Remember the teachings of Christ that um, this, this table is reserved uh, for believers. Uh, for those who have put their faith in Jesus, uh, who have been assured of that, uh, are, are uh, faithfully walking in the Lord and his ways, uh, part of a, a active part of the community. Uh, and uh, so if you are not a uh, Christian here today, we're thankful you're here uh, to be able to hear uh, what we believe and how it's changed us. But um, we ask that as you come up here that um, you refrain from uh, taking the elements, but take these prayer cards uh, with you back to your seat and uh, re pray with them and participate with us uh, by praying through those uh, prayers there. Also, if you happen to be here and um, in your heart you know that uh, something's not right in your relationship with God, uh, there's unconfessed sin, and um, you just feel like in your heart your conscience isn't right, uh, 
participate in communion. Uh, so in order to avoid uh, coming in a manner wor- uh, unworthy uh, and drinking and eating judgment on yourself, we also ask that you refrain and take these prayer cards uh, back with you and uh, pray through them. Um, but for the rest of us, uh, remember all the spiritual blessings uh, that he gives us and offers us so freely. Uh, so let's come in faith and remember uh, the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus our Lord. That the Lord Jesus Christ, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, as I, ministering in his name, give to you, saying, take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. And in the same manner, he took the cup, and having given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let's come to the table together. Christ broken for us so that we can understand all that he went through. Take and eat. When you feel unworthy before the Lord because of remaining sin, he shed his blood to cleanse you. Drink from it. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, uh, for 
for the cross. Uh, thank you, Jesus, for new hope and new life. And thank you that, Lord, when we're weary, running in the wrong direction, God, you always intervene. You stop us in your grace and love and um, give us uh, so many reasons and uh, opportunities, God, to turn around and run back to you. So I pray, again, if we've been so feeling so hopeless and broken and weary, running in the wrong direction, placing our feet on sinking sand, Lord. Uh, thank you that you look at us, Lord, with such tender eyes of love. And thank you that you reach down to us. And you want to lift us up to a higher place, Lord, uh, where we can experience in fullness, Lord, all the riches of, of Jesus, uh, the hope of eternal life, Lord, uh, where one day all our tears and pain, all the weariness will be taken away forever. And we can rest in the arms of our Savior with whom we will reign forever in glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, would you rise with me and we'll close in song.